Father, we want to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have made it such that we ought see him in your word. And so would you give us grace during this time to see Jesus through the preaching of your word. Make it plain to us, Father. Help us to have an encounter with the living Christ who gave his life on the cross for sinners like us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Few things in life are certain. For example, our plans. Are your plans certain? Does your schedule at work or with the kids go just as planned? Not very often, does it? Do work projects at home ever go as you planned? Almost never. Some of us expected to go to the Texas mission trip next week. That trip was canceled. None of those well-laid plans are certain, are they? Many are the plans in the mind of a man, the proverb says, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What is reliable? What is certain? Your job? Not really. The economy? No. Not reliable. How about America? How about our nation's constitution? Well, there's probably a room full of opinions about that one. But I think we're hard-pressed to say that we can pin much certainty on our country or on our Constitution. Even Benjamin Franklin didn't. Most of you probably know his famous quote. He wrote to a French scientist in 1789, saying, Our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death. And taxes. You can probably resonate with that statement. Much in our world today, over 200 years later, remains uncertain. Yet your taxes are still due on Monday, I think. <laughs> so you better get them in if you haven't already. And you will die. You will die. The Bible makes it clear. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. We don't like taxes. Maybe you're prone to complain about them. Every year there's a requirement to submit them. And if you owe, then there's an additional temptation to complain and grumble. But with death, we work hard just not to think about it. Maybe we should have an annual submission, some kind of written acknowledgement. I certify that one day I will die. Eric Abbey. Seal it, stamp it, send it in. Perhaps your annual's, annual doctor's visit feels a little bit like this. Maybe every year when you go in for your annual checkup, the doctor seems to remind you of your mortality. You could lose a few pounds. Your cholesterol numbers are up. You're going to die one day. This is part of the reason I haven't been to the doctor in some 10 years. <laughs> but don't tell Shannon. We don't like to think and talk about taxes very much. We really don't like to think or talk about death. Now, why is that? Why do we have such an aversion to death? Well, it can seem like a giant unknown. I think it's intimidating because none of us have personally experienced it. You can't get very practiced at death, can you? So it's unknown, and it's final. It's abrupt, and that's scary. That's frightening. The finality of death is severe, which can make it very disconcerting. 
but I'm persuaded that the biggest reason we avoid thinking about death is because deep down we know that it's an enemy. We know that it's unnatural. Or to say it another way, we know that our death is a result of our sin. It's the punishment we earned because of our transgressions against God. God has hardwired it in you. You know God's righteous decree that all who practice sin deserve to die. The wages of your sin is death. And that ups the ante. That makes death even more alarming. So how can you approach death without wilting? How can you approach it without recoiling? How can you be rescued from death and the fear of death? How can you be rescued from your sin, the very cause of death? Is it possible to even have confidence and hope as you face your own death? Well, I want us to answer these questions by turning together in John chapter 9. So grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 19. Excuse me. Before I read, starting in verse 31, let me speak a little bit to the context of this passage. The Gospel of John is very Jewish in nature. John's primarily writing to fellow Hebrews, showing them many signs that Jesus performed. And his hope is that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they would have life in his name. And for this reason, John presents Jesus as the Jewish Passover lamb. Now remember, last Sunday, Pastor Craig told us about rescue foretold. He described the Jewish Passover as a typological foretelling of our salvation in Christ. He explained from Exodus 12 how the Passover lamb pointed forward to Jesus Christ and foreshadowed how Jesus himself, the true Passover lamb, would deliver his people from judgment and bondage to sin. It's fitting then that we would turn to John 19 here on Good Friday. Throughout this gospel, John presents Jesus as the Jewish Passover lamb. You may recall how John the Baptist describes Jesus at the very beginning, right in chapter 1. He says in verse 29, as Jesus approaches him, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, he states it twice. The next day, verse 35 of chapter 1, he stands with his disciples. They watch Jesus walk by, and John exclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God. And in addition to this, John, the gospel writer, makes the Passover very prominent. Often the Passover provides a framework for the story he's telling. For example, chapter 2, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed. Or chapter 6, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Or chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew his hour had come. And then in our chapter for today, chapter 19, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. So often John frames his gospel with the Passover, and it's no different with chapter 19. And when you read in chapter 19, verse 14, that it was the day of preparation of the Passover, you should interpret it as the day of preparation during Passover week, or it was the day of preparation during the Passover festival. The trial and crucifixion of Jesus happened during Passover week. In fact, the crucifixion occurred on the first Paschal day. We think of that as the Passover proper. And Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples at the very beginning of the Passover, and that's when he gives the new commandment to love one another and institutes the Lord's Supper. And then not long after, he's betrayed and arrested and brought to the praetorium 
Pilate's court, and the Jews shout, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate passes judgment on him, and he's crucified. During his crucifixion, his garments are divided among the soldiers. He provides care for his bereft mother, and he fulfills the scriptures by saying, I thirst. And then he completes his work of atonement for sin. He says, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit. Now look with me at verse 31, John 19. I'm going to read verses 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So the day of preparation, as we read it, is a time indicator. It tells us that the crucifixion of Christ occurred on a Friday. The day of preparation was the day before the Saturday Sabbath. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark speaks of it this way. It was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. And because the Jews were concerned about the Sabbath, they wanted to end the crucifixions as soon as possible and remove the criminals from their crosses. See, Deuteronomy 21 says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the Jewish authorities want to obey this command. They don't want to defile the land. Moreover, the next day is a Sabbath, so there's extra incentive to clear the crosses. And it was a high Sabbath. Did you catch that? This was because it was the Sabbath during the Passover week. So the Jews asked Pilate to have the legs of the criminals on the cross broken. This was common practice that would speed up the death of those who were being crucified. Crucifixion could last for days. But broken legs precluded the victim from lifting his body up and being able to breathe. So asphyxiation and thus death would come more quickly if the legs were broken. Pilate grants this request, and the soldiers come to the cross, and they break the legs of the men, both to the left and to the right of Jesus. But when they get to Jesus, they don't break his legs. He's already dead, so there's no need to do so. But one soldier does pierce his side with a spear, and out flows blood and water. So it's crystal clear that Jesus is dead. The soldiers recognize it. No need to break his legs. And the spear thrust further proves it. All that's here is a corpse. And not only that, but John, the gospel writer, witnessed this firsthand. That's what he says in verse 35. The one bearing witness is the author of the gospel himself. John was a disciple of Jesus, and he was a disciple who remained at the cross. In fact, Jesus spoke to him directly from the cross in verse 26. And evidently, John remained at the cross after Jesus died, and he saw the soldiers come. So he bears witness. 
His testimony is true. He's telling the truth in this gospel. So that you may believe. Do you see that at the end of verse 35? So that you may believe. Well, why would you believe? And what does it mean to believe? You should believe because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures as the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. How did Jesus fulfill the scriptures? By not having any one of his bones broken. Well, listen to Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. This is the statute of the Passover. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Or Numbers 9, 12. They shall eat the Passover with unleavened bread and, and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. Throughout Israel's history, the Passover lamb was not to have any of its bones broken. Now fast forward to Jesus. He sacrifices the true Passover lamb, the one to whom the whole Passover festival points, and not one of his bones is broken. In fulfillment of these Old Testament scriptures, Jesus is already dead, quickly dead, so his bones aren't broken. Now let me ask you a question. Why was it that Jesus died so quickly? The criminals to his left and right were still alive. Their legs were broken, but Jesus had died rather quickly. Why is that? Well, let's think a little bit about Jesus' trial and crucifixion. When Jesus is betrayed, he's turned over first to the high priests of Israel. Then he's transferred to the governor's headquarters where he's interviewed and judged by Pilate. And do you remember how Pilate declared Jesus innocent? and initially tried to set him free. We read about that. Originally, Pilate goes out to the crowd of the Jews and says, I find in him no guilt. And he tries to release him as part of their Passover custom, but the crowd requests Barabbas. So then Pilate has Jesus flogged, John 19, verse 1. And this is likely the first of two beatings that Jesus received. This would have been a lighter Roman beating, but still quite the punishment. And Pilate hoped this would placate the Jewish leaders and, and put an end to the trial. So Pilate says again in chapter 19, verse 4, See, I am bringing out to you this man, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus is presented to the crowd, already flogged, bruised, and bloody, wearing a crown of thorns, wrapped in a mocking robe of purple, hailed derisively as king but Pilate's actions, they don't appease the crowd one bit, do they? Instead, the crowd becomes more animated than ever, and they shout, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate succumbs to their demands, and he sits in the seat of judgment, and he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. And at this point, Jesus would have received a second beating. The first would have been a less severe flogging. Now, this second one, preceding crucifixion, would have been the most extreme and intense beating the Romans could ever issue. Roman scourging, the kind that accompanied crucifixion, was brutal. It was severe. The victim was tied to a post and beaten by several soldiers who had whips fitted with pieces of lead or bone or other material. And the victim was beaten so brutally that often the soldiers would give out due to exhaustion. So Jesus, after a night of no sleep, already having experienced one flogging, is scourged so severely that he can't even carry his own cross. 
He sets out bearing it resolutely. You see that in chapter 19, verse 17. But other gospel accounts tell us that he's too weak to continue. He can't do it. So in steps Simon of Cyrene. And then Jesus is nailed to the cross. Only hours later, after being nailed to the cross, he dies. Do you see how severe, how intense the suffering of crucifixion was for Jesus? This would account, humanly speaking, for the quick death of Jesus. And when the soldiers came around to break legs, he was already dead. He indeed was slaughtered. Slaughtered as the Passover lamb. His sacrifice is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover. None of his bones were broken. He was without blemish. There was no moral stain in Jesus whatsoever. Even pagan Pilate declared him to be innocent and guilt-free. He was offered as a sacrifice on the day of the Passover. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he did not speak a word. And his blood provides you with rescue from your enemies. His sacrifice and his death on the cross accomplished your deliverance. On account of Christ's crucified blood has been shed that can now cause the Lord to pass over you and spare you from judgment. Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has indeed been sacrificed. Behold, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now, how do you enjoy the benefits of this Passover sacrifice? How do you apply the blood of Jesus Christ to the doorposts and the lintel of your heart? It's through faith. You look upon the one whom they have pierced. That's the other text of fulfillment in our passage. One of the soldiers thrust a spear into the side of Jesus to confirm his death, and John tells us that was to fulfill Zechariah 12.10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. John wants you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ alone, he wants you to be believing, not unbelieving. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This crucified Passover lamb has won salvation for all who look to him by faith. If you trust him, if you're believing, then you're saying, Jesus suffered in my place. He bore my sins He took the penalty for my iniquities. I'm guilty. I deserve to go to hell because of my transgressions against God. But the innocent Lamb of God was slaughtered so that I could be forgiven. Jesus was judged and and shed his blood so that I could be passed over. And judgment would not fall on me. That's what the believing man and woman is saying. Do you believe that Jesus was sacrificed for you? Do you believe that Jesus was crucified in your place? Do you believe it? Your sin against God needs to be punished. Hell is just because of your rebellion against God. And here is a lamb who has been provided as your substitute. The very lamb of God himself. The son of God himself. And I'm asking you tonight, are you trusting him? Are you looking to him whom they have pierced? If not, let me beseech you this evening to come to him. Turn away from your sins, repent, and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He can take away your sin, and he will if you just come to him by faith.
He'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you and he'll pass over you in judgment. He'll take away his judgments against you. And if you're trusting him, rejoice. Your rescue has been accomplished. Your sin has been atoned for. Jesus, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now read with me our remaining verses in John 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Again, with the Sabbath fast approaching, it was necessary to remove Jesus from the cross quickly and to bury his body expediently. So in God's providence, this was enabled to happen because of two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And these men were both wealthy, high-ranking Jewish leaders, likely members of the Sanhedrin, which is the supreme council of the Jews. And Joseph seems to use his position not only to gain a hearing with Pilate, but to get permission from him to retrieve the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus provides the spices and aloes to prepare the body for burial, almost 75 pounds Together, and likely with the help of some of their servants, they wrap the body of Jesus and they place it in the tomb. And this was a unique tomb. The tomb was Joseph's. He owned it and had never used it, which meant that Jesus' body was the first and the only body to go in that tomb that night. And it was located close to the cross. They were able to take the body down and prepare it and place it immediately in the tomb. And this enabled them to complete the burial customs and have the body secured in time for the Sabbath. Now note with me what might be obvious here. Jesus was dead. Not almost dead, not a little dead, he was completely dead. If the eyewitness account of the spear in his side wasn't enough, there were also two prominent Jewish leaders who not only witnessed but executed his very burial. This certifies his death. This burial signs and seals the death of the Messiah. The Lamb of God has been slain, and now he's been placed in a brand new, unused tomb, all by himself. And this sets the stage for chapter 20. It sets the stage for Easter Sunday, because in the very next verse, Mary Magdalene visits the tomb and finds the stone rolled away. Peter and our friend John race each other to the tomb, and they find linen cloths, and they find a face cloth, but they find no body. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The lamb who died to take away sin has now overcome the grave. Not only has Satan's head been, head been crushed, but sin has been vanquished and death has been defeated. Rescue has been accomplished and your enemies have been overcome. The crucified one has now conquered. So what is certain? Taxes? 
Yes, taxes are certain. And so is death. Your death. If you're willing to be honest this evening, you'll accept it. You will die. And you don't know when. And you don't know how soon it'll happen. You know, it was only five months after Ben Franklin wrote the letter that contained the famous quote I read that he passed away. Five months after he wrote that, he passed away on April 17, 1790. What he said was certain indeed proved to be certain in his life. And it will prove to be certain in yours. You and I would do well to consider our approaching death and not ignore it as an insignificant reality. So let's be reminded of another certainty tonight. What else is certain? It is certain that Jesus Christ died. He died on the cross as a sin offering. He died as a sacrifice for sinners, as the prophesied Passover lamb. And he died in your place if you're united to him by faith. He bore our sins. He declared his atoning work finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He was pierced with the spear of a soldier and he was certifiably buried. And then he rose from the dead. This is certain. His atoning death is certain. His resurrection is certain. This gospel is certain. It's sure. You can bank on it. You can rely fully on it. You can go all in on this gospel. You don't have to hesitate or halt or hedge one bit. This is why Friday is so good. This is good Friday. And as a result, you can have confidence, brother and sister. You can have hope. The certain death of Jesus Christ should give you poise as you consider your own death. It can cause you to anticipate death with a calm and a steady heart. It can enable you to say along with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ, but to die is gain. So trust Christ with all your heart. Rejoice with all your heart. Rest in him with all your heart because he has indeed accomplished your rescue. He's delivered you from sin and he's delivered you from death. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in and through Jesus Christ, you accomplished our rescue. You won our salvation. You completed the task of atoning for sinners like us, and we rejoice that we can face death with confidence, that though this reality yet hangs over our heads, we can know that you have put death down through the resurrection of your Son, and that one day we too will be raised Thank you for the promises of the gospel. Thank you for the certainty of the gospel. Would it be an anchor for us as we think about the gospel this weekend? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.